Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Ifi Chiwetelu. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. A living nightmare. A grandmother in Israel recalls the agonizing hours she spent hiding in a bomb shelter while Hamas militants shot and killed her friends and neighbors and kidnapped others. Danger everywhere. Inside Gaza, a doctor is trying to keep his three children distracted amid the sounds of Israel's bombardment. And he anticipates the challenges he'll face working in a hospital under what the Israeli government is calling a complete siege. Hostage negotiations. Analyst Robin Wright tells us about what she calls the incredible human leverage Hamas will wield against Israel now and how that country's military might respond. Driving the point home. A truck driver in Texas says she was denied a job because the company she wanted to work for would only allow a female driver to train her. She's joined a new discrimination complaint. Eating clean, California becomes the first American state to ban four food additives, including red dye number three. We'll speak to a politician who says victory in this case tastes pretty sweet. And women of a certain wage. Claudia Golden has been awarded the Nobel Economics Prize for her research on the gender pay gap. And she's the first woman to ever win this prize without sharing it with a man. As it happens, the Monday edition, radio that wonders how that didn't raise Nobels. In Israel, the dead are still being counted as the country vows revenge. More than 900 people are now dead since Hamas militants from Gaza crossed the border on Saturday, killing civilians and soldiers. Dozens of Israelis were kidnapped and brought back to Gaza. The hostages reportedly include infants and grandmothers. Shavan Rahamin lives in the kibbutz Nahal Az, a village only a few hundred meters from the Gaza border. We reached her in Kibbutz Sadat Negev, where she escaped with her family after the attacks. Siobhan, before we talk about how all of this began, I just wanted to ask how you're doing today. Today, uh, just this afternoon, I realized what we went through. I'm sitting here looking at all my family, and I just realized that in one way I'm blessed that I'm with my family and they're all with me together and that we're all safe because it was horrific. It was horrific. I never, never in my worst dreams imagined that something could happen. Siobhan, I know it it won't be easy, certainly, but if you could take us back to Saturday morning, what was the first sign that you were under attack? The first thing was that there was several, several rockets. I mean, there was about over 50 rockets, one after the other, one after the other. And we realized this is un, it's very unusual. So we ran to the to our bomb shelter. Every house has a bomb shelter, by the way. Anyway, we closed the door and sat inside and 
of course, I turned on the television immediately and there was nothing on the television. You know, they didn't realize what was happening. There was another rocket, another rocket, another rocket. There were so many rockets. And then and then afterwards, we realized that there was people, they were shooting outside. We could hear shots from from a rifle. And what, what's happening? You know, why why are the army shooting? Who are they shooting at? You know, we thought it was the army. Your husband called into a television station, as I understand it, while you were in the yes, bomb shelter. Yes. Well, what happened was they had called him earlier, and we were just we were just getting these messages from people, you know, that there there the, there are terrorists inside the house. So we we were in shock, and we, we thought, well, it's it's getting clear closer to us because it's our neighbours, like you know, a hundred meters away, which is really close. So we thought, well, oh, you know, they're coming to us next. So he said he couldn't talk now. And because we, we didn't want, you know, them to be able to hear us. Anyway, after a while, we realized this was getting worse and worse. And they were going into more and more houses, which were really close to us. And he called them back and said, look, there are Hamas in our kibbutz and they're killing people. They're killing people and we want them, the army to come. There's no army. Where is the army? Please tell the army to come and help us. There's nobody helping us. We're alone. And they're killing people on the kibbutz. They just came into houses and they killed people. They were describing it quite graphically. Well, it was, it was, it, and you know, they put it on on air. They put it on air. They came into one house and they shot people and shot the, one of the members' daughters in front of all the family and took hostage and, and another family nearby. They took another, a young boy from the first family and they took him at gunshot to go to other families' houses to tell them to come outside. So as you're hearing about about all of that, at one point I know your your power was cut, so you're in the dark, but you do know that outside in your community people are being killed and in some cases kidnapped. So what is going through your mind at that point? I was just thinking of my children. I was just thinking of my children. I wasn't worried about me. I was thinking about my children. My children who had, uh, my son has three children. It was lucky that they were there with my son. He realized what was happening. He knew that he had to keep them calm and he just took everything, all the, you know, the candy that they had in the house and the chocolate and everything that he could get and put them in the bomb shelter with some toys. And he sat there. He waited. At around one o'clock, the army arrived at the kibbutz. And then we heard gunshots again outside our window between the Hamas and the army. And we heard uh, that, that that was apparently afterwards we, we realized that one of our neighbors was shot, another neighbor, in front of his children. And the army managed to kill the, the Hamas there. You're able to recount now, so many details, Siobhan, um, but you must still, I know you said it's just starting to sink in two days later, but you're, it sounds like you're still very understandably in shock. Uh, of course, I'm in shock, and, I, and every time I, I talk about it, I realize, you know, I don't know where I had the power. I don't know. I think it's just the mother instinct mm-hmm. that uh, when the, the army came and said that we have to, to pack our bags, I said, and move, and they took, they came with the hammer. I said, I'm not going. I'm not going with you until you take me to my son. I don't know if he's okay. I have to see if he's okay and take the children. I have three grandchildren. So they saw that I wasn't moving and they took me to his house and they took me and there were the rockets all over the place shooting and, and we ran to their house. I knocked on his window to ask him to open the door. 
So I was banging on the window and telling him, it's mum, open the door, it's your mother, come open the door, we've come to take you. And he didn't answer me. Yeah. We went to the to the door and they were just about to broke it, break down the door. They were thinking about how breaking down the door and then he opened the door. So I was just a relief. He went inside. I saw the children sleeping, three children. Oh. We we took suitcases. We packed what we could. And then they we went back to the Hammerim and they took us off of the kibbutz. Can you imagine going back to your home? <laughs> I talked about that today. They brought a, a, a psycho, psychologist here to talk to us. I've only just been able to, you know, think what, what we went through yesterday. You know, you, it takes a while to, I don't know if I lost my, my words. Um, it's understandable, Siobhan. To, 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 to regulate to what we, what we yeah. went through. And until now, I haven't watched any news. I don't want to watch any news because every time I watch it, it just brings me back, back to to what to what we we what we went through, and it's just I just can't believe I'm safe, and I thank God that I'm safe, and I keep saying that to my children. We just have to be thankful that we're safe and that we're together. Given everything that's happened, can you imagine a time of peace and a time where you go home? You are before this happened, I. I imagine there would be peace someday, but with people like the Hamas, there's no way. There's no way there could be peace. I don't. I don't know unless somebody in Gaza. I don't know. I don't know. I really. I believe that there are people in Gaza who want peace. We know people in Gaza. We were in contact with people in Gaza before the Hamas took over, and we know there are families there that they want peace. Yeah. They want to live in peace. And, and we believe that there are families there that, you know, when every, every time we went through a session of the, the, the previous wars, we, I just kept thinking about the families there, that they have no bomb shelter. We have bomb shelters. We, we are safe. We, you know, we have somewhere to run, but they don't. They have nothing. And, and, and the Hamas sent them in, into the borders and, and to, to, to be killed. You know, they have no, they have no value for life. No value whatsoever for life. I mean, I mean, coming to people's houses and shooting them at gunshot. But for them, it's you know, it's a victory. There are so many people still missing, and I believe they're not alive. I don't know. I want to believe maybe they are. I don't know whether it was the best to be alive or to be in hostage. I don't know, or to be and you know, to be killed or be in hostage. I'm glad you're with your family, Siobhan, and that you're safe now. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you too. Please I take hope care. I hope you you spread the message to the world because what happened here is just unbelievable. But I'm I'm my heart just breaks for the families the families that their loved ones are in Gaza or have been killed. Siobhan, thank you, thank you. Okay, please thank take you. care. Thank you. Okay, please send the message. Okay, we will. Please send the message to the world. Okay, we will. Thank you. Bye. We reached Shivan Rahamim in kibbutz.negev, Israel. Today, Israel ordered what it calls a complete siege of Gaza. It has hit the area with airstrikes and cut off food, electricity, and fuel supplies. As we go to air, authorities in Gaza say nearly 700 people have been killed in the bombardment and almost 2,000 wounded. Hamam Alo is an internal medicine doctor. We reached him earlier today in Gaza City. Dr. Alo, can you describe the situation in Gaza today? What is it like there now? 
it's terrible. I mean, throughout the day, we've been hearing bombings everywhere. Uh, a lot of civilians are asked to evacuate their houses, and other times civilians are not asked. Their houses are just bombed or hit. So it's, it's terrible. With the kids, we try to keep them occupied to play, to write, to draw, but we do not always succeed because they keep hearing bombings from outside home every day. How old are your children? Um, they are five, four, and six months old. What are you telling them? I can't really always explain what's going on. I just tell them there are a lot of problems happening in our country. And at times we may hear, because they, they already lived this before more than once. So every time something like this happens, we tell them there are problems between us and another country. We are trying to solve it. And at times you may hear some bombings, but be sure we love you, we'll stay around you, and it's going to be fine. In your capacity as a doctor, what have you seen at the hospital since since these assaults oh, began? Uh, the situation is is horrible. The uh, shortage in 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 physicians and supplies, surgical instruments, uh, blood products, IV fluids, medications, ambulance, nurses, physicians. It's it's a mess. You treated at least one patient who was injured in the bombings, is that right? Uh, yes, I did, though I'm not a surgeon, mm-hmm. but I had to because we were short of hands. Can you tell me about what happened? He he had significant second-degree burns covering more than one-third of his body surface area. He had other bleeding wounds. We were short of blood products. We couldn't even run follow-up labs to know whether he will need more blood product transfusion or not. The family was very afraid and angry. I had nothing to tell to the family to make them feel better or safe because I, I was out of options. Who do you blame, doctor, for what's happening? Who do you think I would blame? I would blame not only Israel, but the international community not defending for us enough. And what about Hamas? Well, th- this is a, a complex political issue, but uh, all all what I know is that not only um, non-civilians are being targeted, civilians, mosques, everything is being targeted. So I can't blame them for that. I can't blame who is bombing. I asked because, as you as you know, Doctor Hamas attacked Israelis, kidnapped Israelis, yeah. and killed Israelis beginning on Saturday. Yeah. We cannot mention this piece of information and forget the provocation over decades and the settlers and what they did over, especially the course of the last months, provoking people praying in Al-Aqsa. And everyone on earth knows what Al-Aqsa means to all Palestinians and Muslims. So we cannot forget this provocation and come and provoke people defending their lands. This is not fair. I spoke with, a, with, with an Israeli woman who lives on a kibbutz. Uh, she and her family survived. 
Uh, she said she was worried about Palestinian families as well who don't have what she has, bomb shelters. But I wonder what you think to see all of this happening again and civilians in Israel as well dying. Yeah, I mean, I mean there are losses from both sides. And I feel sorry for civilians from both sides. And I do not wish this or something bad to happen to civilians all over the world, not only in, in Palestine or Israel. But I cannot ignore the provocation that has been done by settlers and by uh, Israel occupation defense throughout not only the last month, for decades. If someone comes to steal your house and the property, how would you deal with them? Say thank you. As you know, as you may have heard, I'm not sure what communication is getting through. It was very difficult to, to reach you because lines are being cut Israel has ordered what it calls a, quote, complete siege of Gaza. What will that mean for you and your family and others? This means I will not be able to live in a few days if there is no going to be any water to drink. This means that we can't treat the people in hospitals. This means a death sentence to all people living in the Gaza Strip. How will you keep your family safe? How will you survive, do you think? I don't know if over the next minute I will survive or not, because I know a lot of people who thought they were safe and they were just simply killed. So I can't really answer you this question, but I have already tried to buy enough things and utensils to keep things going smoothly over the two or three days, I mean water and food. Mm -hmm. But after that, I don't know how I could bring uh, at least milk for my uh, six-month-old child. I can't be a real answer for your question or a good answer for your question. No, you gave a very real answer to the question. You said you lost lost people you know. No one in living in Gaza could possibly not lose people they know. We all lost people we know. It's either a cousin, a sibling, a family friend. So this is happening over the years. If not during this surge of violence, then this happened many times before. I lost a cousin, I lost a relative. Doctor? Doctor, are you all right? Are you there? We lost the connection with Dr. Alo, but managed to get him back briefly on the line. Doctor? Yeah. Doctor, thank you so much. Are you okay? We were just worried that that something happened. No, no, I'm not very okay. Actually, there was uh, bombing very close from my house. Doors spontaneously opened, and windows uh, broke, glass broke. I can't know yet where is this, but it is very close from my house. I'm glad you're okay uh, at the moment. We'll let you go, because I know you have to get to safety. But thank you for your time, doctor. Please take care. You're very welcome. Thank you. Bye. Dr. Hamam Alo is an internal medicine specialist. We reached him earlier today in Gaza City.
Uncertainty and fear are widespread in the Middle East tonight. That's especially true for the dozens of Israelis and others held captive right now in Gaza. A spokesperson for Hamas warned tonight that the group will execute one civilian hostage for every unannounced attack on civilians in Gaza. Robin Wright is a Middle East journalist and joint fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace and the Woodrow Wilson International Center. We reached her in Washington. Robin, how does the fact that these hostages have been taken, that they are clearly in danger, how does that impact how Israel proceeds now? In many ways, the hostages add a layer of complexity never seen in an Israeli war with one of the militias, be it in Hamas or Hezbollah. It's added a technical, military, tactical element to the conflict, and it adds that human psychological drama as well. I suspect that there will be a ceasefire or an end of hostilities long before the release of the last hostage, because the human beings give Hamas incredible leverage. How long before a ceasefire might come, in your view? The current war between Israel and Hamas is different from the kind of firefights they've had that spanned several days in the past. In the past, there was a rocket attack or missile attack from Hamas. Israel would then launch airstrikes against Hamas targets, Gaza, Uh, And then there would be outside intervention, usually from Egypt and Qatar, to negotiate some kind of ceasefire. The scope of the current war, the death toll, the tactics used, all dwarf anything that has come before. So I suspect this will play out for weeks ahead. A spokesperson for the military wing of Hamas has said that in return for every Israeli bombing of a civilian house without warning, it would begin executing an Israeli civilian captive and then broadcast it. Do you believe, Robin, that they will follow through on those threats? In these kinds of wars, there's often a lot of bravado. Uh, The prime minister of Israel has also talked about this war leading to a reshaping of the whole region. One can only pray that Hamas does not execute anyone, does not harm, hurt anyone. But it has been ruthless so far in the scope of its killings and taking of hostages. So there is that very real fear. And this, again, would be something new that we haven't seen in previous conflicts with Hamas. We have seen Israel in the past, you know, exchange for one Israeli soldier, uh, I believe a thousand Palestinian prisoners, if I'm not mistaken. So what do you think they would be able to to give up here? Israel actually gave up 1,100. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a huge magnitude. The question I guess all of us want to know is what is it that Hamas would be asking from Israel uh, for the release? And obviously, short term, the answer is an end of hostilities, an end of the airstrikes. But what does it mean long term? This again As we all know, hostage dramas in the Middle East can drag on for years. I had friends, colleagues who were held in Lebanon by Hezbollah for as long as seven years. The scope of this, again, it's just hard to fathom how this plays out. When, you know, you talk about the the strong words that are used in conflicts such as these, Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, saying we're going to change the Middle East or, you know, Israeli officials saying it's going to be a complete siege of of Gaza. These lives of these hostages are on the line. So will they go through? Will they carry out what they're promising to carry out, even with these lives on the line? 
Israel is determined to cripple Hamas, uh, eliminate its leaders, destroy its arsenal, and I suspect that it will, as it has promised, wage a major war and conduct a siege of Gaza, which is a very small area, roughly 130 square miles, but home to 2 million people. That will have a devastating effect. But yes, Israel will be very sensitive to where might the hostages, the Israelis, be held. And remember, there are some foreigners who are also uh, held by Hamas. And there's a danger that this in turn sucks in other countries, whether it's the United States or or others, because there is a human dimension for those nations as well in this conflict. How much can other countries help at this point? Well, it depends on what you mean by help. Uh, The United States has deployed warships and says it's going to augment its warplanes in the region. But that kind of signal to others, don't get involved in this war. But what can any country do militarily in taking on uh, Hamas? And what does that open up in the way of a wider conflagration? I think there are a lot of uh, people right now who are worried about the dangers of that happening uh, and hoping that other parties don't get involved because if the United States does, the, do others, other militias, Hezbollah in Lebanon mm-hmm. or militias in Iraq, yeah. Yemen and elsewhere also get involved in then targeting the United States. So um, this is going to be an incredibly difficult balancing act and figuring out how do you resolve the human drama um, at the same time you want to kind of end this very brutal conflict. Yeah, when I say help, I, I didn't mean necessarily military help. I mean in, to quell this violence. Well, the United States has reached out to a lot of its allies, and I suspect, I suspect Canada has too, to try to relay messages. Let's all try to make sure that this isn't doesn't suck in other parties, other militias, and become a wider war. But in terms of what can be done diplomatically, not a whole lot. That's the one problem. There is not a great dialogue between many of the Western powers, and the challenge is what are some imaginative ways of trying to influence either side at a time that emotions are running very high because of the scope of the death and destruction. We spoke earlier to uh, a woman, Siobhan, who who survived an attack on her kibbutz, and she, like a lot of people, are asking, how did this happen now? How was it that authorities were not prepared for an attack like this? What would you say in answer to that question? Remember a couple of things. First of all, that the focus by Israeli intelligence, military, and even the outside world was on the tensions playing out in the West Bank Mm -hmm. over settlement issues and um, the kind of rhetoric flying around about the future of the Temple Mount. And um, attention was diverted. That's the bottom line. And the focus was elsewhere. And that you know, is stunning, both for Israel and I think some of the Western powers who monitor what's going on in Israel, what's going on with uh, extremist militias. And the fact they they missed it, we're looking elsewhere, will lead to a lot of probes down the road of why people missed what was the most widespread, imaginative, coordinated offensive ever launched by Hamas. Robin, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. 
Robin Wright is a Middle East journalist and joint fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace and the Woodrow Wilson International Center. She was in Washington. Not another foot. That's how much more of the wall along the U.S.-Mexico border Joe Biden promised to build. But that was in 2020 when he was running for president against Donald Trump, who had made the wall a key part of his platform. Then, late last week came the news that 20 miles of new border walls would be built in Texas. Biden says his hands are tied by laws requiring money earmarked for wall construction be used for that purpose. Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar represents the area where the new wall is set to be built. We reached him in Laredo, Texas. Congressman, you wrote in 2018 that a wall would be ineffective. Joe Biden said as much even more recently. So why is this happening now? Because there's a 1974 law that says that if Congress tells the executive branch that they have to do something, then they have to carry that. So therefore, the president had to do what he had to do. Now, I do question if he had to waive the environmental laws. That totally is something very, very different. But as to the spending of the money, uh, he got forced by the um, 1974 Empowerment Control Act. It's, it might be hard for our listeners to wrap their heads around. Are you satisfied that the administration, your party as well, did everything they could do and and tried every possible legal angle to stop this if they are, in fact, against it? Well, uh, on the Empowerment Control Act, I, I do understand that they have to follow that law. And I think he moved monies around. Everything that's allowed, there was a, a, an amount that he could have done, and he did. That I understand. Can they do more without using using the wall? Yes, absolutely. For example, if you look at what President Obama did, he did two things that were very effective to lower the, um, the number of people coming across. And he did it without immigration reform. He did it without uh, Title 42. What he did, number one, he used the current law called Title VIII to do expedited removals, number one. And number two, he got Mexico to do a, a better job than they're doing now. In fact, at one time, at that time, uh, Mexico was stopping more people at their southern border than the U.S. Border Patrol was doing at the U.S.-Mexico border. So there are things that can be done that have been tried in the past, and they can work. But, so why aren't they you know, doing you it? You've got to have the fortitude to do that. Why aren't they doing it? Uh, you got to have the fortitude to do that. If you listen to only immigration advocates, then you're not going to do this. But I think now the administration is starting to hear from the big cities, New York, Chicago, uh, Washington, D.C., and I think they're now looking at other options. Mm-hmm. Last week, as you as you likely know, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas put out a statement saying, quote, there is presently an acute and immediate need to construct physical barriers and roads in the vicinity of the border of the United States in order to prevent unlawful entries into the United States. End quote. How would you characterize the flow of migrants across the border? I did ask the secretary why he used that language to waive the uh, he used it to waive the environmental laws. He, he told us that it was the um, lawyers that told him, and again, with all due respect, uh, I think different language could have been used. 
but that was the reason he gave us. Do you feel at odds, Congressman, with your own party right now on this issue? I don't compare myself if I'm with my party now. Mm -hmm. I know my district uh, supports me and understands that this is something that we need to do. I have told my Democratic leaders that we can do two things. We can be strong on border security. And number two, we can still be compassionate and respect immigrants' rights. But it's a false choice to pick one over the other ones. Republicans tend to only concentrate on border security, and Democrats seem to concentrate only on immigrant rights. I think we can do both, and it's, it's a false choice to pick one or the other one. People keep coming, as you know, and you mentioned some of the cities that are that are up in arms. Uh, uh, New York was one of them, certainly, or concerned about the influx. Would you, would you use the word that some have used, crisis? I will tell you that at the border, uh, is there an immigration crisis? Heck yes. Uh, is there a security issue? No, because, you know, the crime rate is a lot lower down here at the border than Washington, D.C., New York, Chicago, and all that. Uh, but is there an immigration crisis at the border? Uh, yes, uh, I will take the word from those folks. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you they're only getting a drop of what we get and what we've gotten here at the border for so many years. President Biden also recently opened up drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, as you know. That was something he had promised not to do also. So are you concerned that there's a pattern developing here? Uh, and do you think that that's, that that's happening because he's trying to appeal to more right-leaning voters or Republican-leaning voters in advance of the next election? Well, I can't, I can't tell you why he did that, but I will tell you that I support oil and gas. I am one of those Democrats that support oil and gas. I think if you look at the uh, energy that Canada has, the U.S. has, Mexico, we are the new Middle East of, of, of the world. You know, can we do it in a safe way uh, and take care of the environment? Of course we can. But again, I don't know why the president did that, but I can tell you that I do support what he did. Are you concerned, though, that, that when you have a couple of broken promises on key issues for voters, Democratic voters, that that those voters might turn away from your party? If you talk, for example, uh, border security, I think people do want him to recalibrate his position because you got to be strong on border security. If you look at the polls between Democrats and Republicans or even the president, we're not doing very well on border security. So if he wants to recalibrate uh, border security, I think that would be a good thing for him to do. In the past, you've, you've talked about, in that same 2018 piece that, that you wrote, you you said technology should be a focus instead. Before we leave you, we're talking about this wall again in 2023. One, did you think we'd still be talking about this? And two, is technology, as you've said before, the answer? I think a, uh, uh, technology has worked well. If you look at it, the military have have used technology very well, drones. Uh, I mean, you know, I'll give you another very specific thing to the border. If you look at uh, technology, the Mexican bad guys have more drones than we have. We got to do better than the bad guys. As an example, I'm using the drone uh, as one specific example. Congressman, we have to leave it there. We're out of time, but thank you. Anytime. Let us know whenever y'all want to follow up. Thank you. Congressman Henry Cuellar represents Texas's 28th congressional district. We reached him in Laredo, Texas.
Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. For the second night in a row, thousands of Afghans slept outside, fearing further earthquakes and tremors. On Saturday, a 6.3 magnitude quake struck western Afghanistan's Herat province. According to Taliban officials, the death toll has already surpassed 2,000. Emergency rescue workers are struggling to reach the hardest-hit areas as communications across the region are down and many of the roads are blocked. This morning, BBC Afghan correspondent Ali Arain told Newsday the Taliban's restrictions on NGOs are further limiting the flow of humanitarian aid. The situation in the ground is very dire. Uh, we see like entire villages, they are flattened. All the uh, houses are destroyed. The, um, the houses, the structure is made of mud and clay. So that's why in the first shake, because the earthquake was so powerful, um, all, all these houses are, are destroyed and whoever were inside the houses. They are, they are under the rebels, uh, mostly children and women, because uh, the earthquake happened at 11 a.m. Uh, local time. So uh, most men, they were out of the houses, but uh, families, the children, the women, they were inside. But we see like different uh, uh, villages in one particular district close to the, um, the border with Iran. Um, uh, lots of villages there, they are completely destroyed. So including my own uh, family, uh, lots of families, like thousands of people, they spent the second night uh, outside uh, in open spaces. Um, they, in, the, in the streets, or, or some of them, they camped outside uh, because there were um, more than 10 tremors uh, during yesterday and even last night. So people are fear, fearful of, of uh, big uh, shakes and uh, that's why uh, most of the people, they, they are afraid to go back inside the uh, houses. There is limited help from um, the Taliban and uh, aid agencies because uh, after the Taliban took over Afghanistan in August 2021 um, and when they brought restrictions uh, on, on the NGOs, especially on, on women working for the NGOs and the UN. So most of the NGOs and aid uh, organizations, they left Afghanistan or, or uh, their funding decreased dramatically. Uh, so um, local people, they they started um, uh, campaigns to collect whatever they can uh, from uh, among themselves and bring them food and and some uh, water and and some other um, uh, medicines uh, to the affected areas. But um, the UN says they are uh, working to bring uh, aid to the uh, local areas, but because um, all the restrictions that have been put by the Taliban in the past two years, it's difficult that the aid goes fast 
to Afghanistan and also to the affected areas. Herat has got a um, a uh, big hospital uh, and and there are small clinics um, uh, in in rural rural areas, but they have very limited uh, uh, medical supplies. Um, so even before this um, earthquake, um, we uh, I know there were uh, shortages of of medical staff and also shortages of, of medicines. Um, so they were always in need of more uh, uh, medical uh, equipments. Now, um, the, uh, the big hospital inside the city center is, is full. So even um, uh, I, I've seen pictures and, and videos which the injured people, they were laying outside the building of the hospital. So um, and and uh, there there isn't enough doctors and nurses and and medical equipments to help these uh, injured people. BBC correspondent Ali Arain speaking with Newsday earlier today about the deadly 6.3 magnitude earthquake that struck western Afghanistan on Saturday. In May, 27-year-old Ashley Streeter got her commercial driver's license. She started to apply for trucking jobs, but when she applied to work at Stevens Transport, she ran into barriers. And she says it's not because she was unqualified, but because of her gender. Ms. Streeter is one of three women who has filed a complaint against Stevens Transport with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Stevens disputes their claims. We reached Ashley Streeter in Colleen, Texas. Ashley, what what drew you to this field? What made you want to be a truck driver? So I initially started um, delivering with Amazon. I started out as a driver. Um, Before that, I was in warehouse. So I've kind of done the in-house version of logistics. Um, Once I got comfortable with delivering with Amazon, um, they released the box trucks. And I just felt like, all right, well, the next step would just be to get the highest one that I could get, which would <laughs> ended up being the CDL. That's a commercial so, driver's license. And correct. So it sounds like you, you were tired of being cooped up. You wanted to hit the road. Yes. So walk us through the application process that your experience when you were applying for a job at Stevens. So initially, um, I put in my first application with them during the time I was still in school. Um, I believe about two weeks before I was graduating, um, just to kind of be proactive. And um, I kept getting the emails um, basically confirming that they got my application when I was ready to go um, to contact the recruiter. So once I graduated, that's exactly what I did. I submitted yet another application and they kept telling me like, okay, well, we have a wait. So I would wait a little bit of time. Um, before I would contact them again and check the status of my application. And I think ultimately I ended up um, submitting about five or six applications to them. And um, sometimes the recruiters would say, like, oh, we have a wait list. Some would say we were waiting um, to have a female trainer available when I let them know that I was open to having a male trainer. Um, So 
by the last time that I tried to call to check my application, they just went ahead and let me know that my application was denied with them. Those are the reasons they gave you. Why do you think you weren't able to get a job there? Their initial reason was not having female trainers. Mm -hmm. So I think that was the only reason because I got licensed. I didn't have anything hindering me from driving. I wasn't a SAP driver, um, which would indicate like I had a DUI or tickets or anything that would hinder me from being hired. So the only other option would be due to the fact of me being a female and them not having a female trainer to train me. But you told them you're okay with having a male trainer. So why do you think the company has this this same-sex training practice that you're describing? What does the training entail that would require that? So because it's an over-the-road um, training, a lot of the times you're going to be on the truck with your trainer, you know, a few weeks, um, sometimes up to eight weeks, depending on which type of loads that you take. And I kind of already had the idea that more likely than not, I might be trained by a male. And I didn't have an issue with that. There are some women in trucking in the field who believe that women should only be trained by other women for safety reasons. Do you understand why there might be some hesitation? I can understand the idea um, of why they would rather. But to me, um, only having a male, or I mean, only having a female trainer doesn't necessarily make me safe. Anything, you know, can happen if you're just a bad person. So to me, it doesn't necessarily guarantee just because I'm with a female trainer versus a male. We did reach out to general counsel for Stevens, Bruce Dean. He directed us to comments in a statement that were published in the U.S. media. And he says, quote, the fundamental premise in the charge that Stevens Transport Inc. only allows women trainers to train women trainees is false, end quote, And went on to say the company, quote, has had a cross-gender training program where both men and women trainers train female trainees for decades, end quote. So what do you say to that? It sounds a lot different than what you encountered. I would disagree with their statement. If if women are just getting into this field, of course, the numbers are going to be low to start. But the only way for them to increase is for them to be hired. And if they're not able to be hired, then I don't see how, you know, it kind of helps with their things. What message do you hope this case sends, Ashley? I mean, for me, I know that there's probably other females thinking the same thing I initially did. Like, okay, well, let me just keep applying and applying and applying. And I didn't necessarily think I had a voice until I started seeing, like, there was other people that felt the same way that I felt. And I just hope that it you know, gets corrected where it it shouldn't be a hindrance. If I'm able to go to a class and get licensed just like anyone, a male could do, I should be able to get hired in the same manner that a male can. And if the legal correction is what fixes it, fine. But ultimately, I just hope that it changes because there's a lot of females that are interested in getting in trucking, but things like this are what stop them from pursuing it. Were there any women in your class at trucking school? I actually no. I was the only female in in my trucking class. And how do you, how were you received in class? Um, I feel like a lot of the males kind of were like seeing me as like, oh, you know, she's this pretty girl. You think you're gonna get your hands dirty? And it's like they oh, kind of had the idea of like not something I could do, and proving them wrong and being able to test 
for the first time and passed the first time when there was a, a more of the classmates that had a test a few times to pass. So it's like, I'm capable of doing it. I just need the opportunity to show that I can. You got an opportunity. You've got a job with a different company, as I understand it. You're set to start soon, tomorrow even. How yes. are you feeling about tomorrow hitting the road? orientation. Yeah. yeah. How are you feeling about hitting the road? I'm, I'm nervous um, just because it's, it's, it's something different. This is going to be the first time that um, I'm away from home. I'm away from my kids. So it's going to be a learning curve, but I'm excited. Um, a little nervous, but I'm excited for the most part. Ashley, thank you for your time. Good luck out there. Thank you so much. That was truck driver Ashley Streeter in Colleen, Texas. Harvard University's Claudia Golden got a phone call early this morning with pretty much the best news any academic could get, the announcement that she is the winner of this year's Nobel Prize for Economics. She's the first woman to ever win the prize on her own and the third ever to be named a winner. The prize honors her work on women in the workforce. She told Adam Smith of the Nobel Prize about her morning. Tell me, how did the news reach you? Uh, the news reached me by phone this morning when I received a, a, a call and and uh, was awakened by it very pleasantly. <laughs> that is a nice way to be woken. I imagine you wake up pretty fast with that news. Yes. What was the first thing you did on hearing about it? Uh, the first thing I did upon uh, hearing it was um, told my husband, who obviously had some idea of what was going on, he he uh, smiled. He said, "That's great. Uh, tell me, just tell me what to do." And I uh, told him to take the dog out and make some tea, and that um, that I had to prepare for a press conference, which <laughs> I wasn't part of. I'm glad the dog made it into this call as well, because of course, Pika features on your website. Yes. The dog is, is right here. He's, he's a very mature animal. He understands what to do. There's, there's an emphasis on the detective work in your, in your studies. And, that, yes. and that's a lovely concept, the idea that, of the researcher as detective. Can you just tell us about that? I've always wanted to be a detective. I've been a detective since I was a little kid. I do my detective work with uh, archival documents, with large amounts of data, I mean, there was a time when we didn't have this tremendous amount of data stored and one had to pull it out from archival documents. Being a detective means that you have a question. And the question is so important that you will go to any end to, to find it. In addition, the detective always believes that there is a way of finding the answer. Claudia Golden is the winner of the 2023 Nobel Prize in Economics. She spoke to Adam Smith of the Nobel Prize.
it can be hard to make it through a good book these days, let alone the list of ingredients on a package of crackers or a candy bar. In an effort to make shelf-stable, appealing, and cost-effective foods, manufacturers have long used a number of additives many of us have never heard of or even can pronounce. But keeping track of these additives is about to get a little easier for Californians. This weekend, the governor signed a bill originally dubbed the Skittles ban into law. The legislation bans four food additives that lawmakers have dubbed toxic. Jesse Gabriel is the Democrat assembly member for Woodland Hills. We reached him in Los Angeles. Jesse, this is the outcome you wanted. So how does victory taste? Uh, It tastes very sweet and very pure. And we are uh, very, very excited that California has passed this first in the nation legislation. And we're hoping that this is the beginning of even something bigger. Naturally sweet. Naturally, naturally (laughs) sweet. Yes. And, and, uh, And without any harmful additives. So let's talk about these four additives that are now banned. What are they and and what are they normally used for? Where would people find them? Yeah, absolutely. So this bill would ban the use of four uh, additives in foods, which we have referred to as the worst of the worst. And so we chose all of them because they are non-essential ingredients that sort of added to foods to enhance the color or enhance the texture of foods. But all of them, there is very strong scientific research linking them to significant health harms, things like reproductive harm, cancer, developmental and behavioral issues in children. And so specifically, the four additives are red dye number three, which is a color which is used to make a very vibrant red color in food, brominated vegetable oil, which is uh, an emulsifier in certain citrus beverages, potassium bromate, which infects the texture of baked goods, and purple bear paraben, which is a preservative that's used in certain baked goods. It's been called the the Skittles ban because it originally included five additives, uh, including the coloring agent titanium dioxide. So why, in the end, did, did that not make the cut? So we, we actually felt very strongly that that uh, was, was something that was should have been included and there was really good scientific evidence to support that as well. But we came to a fork in the road where we understood that if we wanted to get bipartisan support, that we were going to need to take that additive out. And as, as much as this bill was about banning these four uh, harmful chemicals in food in the state of California, it was also making a larger point about the failure at the federal level, about the Food and Drug Administration to uh, properly protect Americans and to properly protect Californians. And so we thought that it was to do something like this that would be big and first in the nation, that it would be even more powerful if we could do it in a bipartisan fashion. And so by removing that additive, uh, we were able to get strong bipartisan support in both houses of the legislature. And, And maybe a little background here for your listeners I am not a particularly healthy eater. Uh, I you love Skittles, I, love I hear. Yeah, I actually, yeah. I actually uh, love Skittles, which is which is part of the irony here. I'm a huge Wildberry Skittles fan. So this was not something on my radar, but I have done a lot of work to protect kids. I have three young kids, and so a lot of my legislative priorities have been protecting about protecting kids. And when I was approached by advocates, you know, I was sort of skeptical of this whole effort, but I agreed that I would sit down and take a look at what they were presenting and take a look at the research. And it sort of blew my mind because what came out of this is the notion that the United States is fundamentally a global outlier when it comes to food safety. So all of the chemicals that are banned in Assembly Bill AB 418, the California Food Safety Act, all of those are already banned in the 27 nations in the European Union. Uh, Many of them are banned in other countries around the world, including Canada, the UK, Mm -hmm. Australia, New Zealand, China, uh, Brazil, India, Israel, Saudi Arabia. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so I looked at this and I said, how can it be that the United States is such an outlier here? 
The National Confectioners Association says your government is, quote, making decisions based on sound bites rather than science, end quote, and that you should rely on, quote, the scientific rigor of the FDA in terms of evaluating the safety of food ingredients and additives. Do you know something the FDA doesn't? Yeah, so so I will agree with them that the government should make decisions based on science where we will firmly disagree with them as whether the FDA is actually doing that and actually living up to its mandate. And so many companies, many major companies in the U.S. have already moved away from using these chemicals. So Coke and Pepsi and Gatorade and Papa John's and Dunkin' Donuts and all of these iconic American brands have stopped using many of these chemicals because of the scientific research linking them to significant health harms. The problem with the FDA approval process is that there is this giant loophole in the process that is referred to as GRASS, which is an acronym for Generally Recognized as Safe. And so when they were setting up the FDA, they created a process where there would be an exception, this GRASS loophole, for products that were common household ingredients like vinegar and sugar and things that human beings have been consuming for thousands of years. And what happened is that very crafty lawyers for the chemical companies and for the industry figured out how to basically shoehorn all of these chemicals into grass. So something like 98.6%, almost 99% of food chemicals that have been placed in American food have never been independently reviewed by the FDA. And that to me was sort of the aha moment when I realized that this is, this is what explains why the United States is in such a different position than the rest of the world is because in Europe and in other countries, these chemicals are being independently evaluated. The science is being independently evaluated by regulators. And in the United States, the chemical companies are grading their own homework. The law goes into effect in 2027. So when will these products start being pulled from the shelves? So the idea is not to have any products be pulled from the shelf. And, and one thing that I think is really important for listeners to understand, this is not a ban on any particular food or any particular product. And we don't believe that any particular food or product is going to come off the shelf. The idea here is to get these manufacturers to make minor modifications to their recipes. In most cases, that's only one ingredient so that they would make, for example, these candies in the same way that they're already being manufactured in Europe. And so these companies already know what the alternative ingredients are. And the idea here is for them over the next couple of years to transition their supply chains and to transition their recipes so that we can all continue to enjoy these products that we know and love here in the United States. But we can do that without these harmful additives, basically getting the same recipes that they're already using in Canada or already using in Europe so that we can have confidence that our kids and our families are safe. Jesse, thank you. Absolutely. Jesse Gabriel is the Democrat Assembly member in the California legislature. We reached him in Los Angeles. Most people go to the mosque in Muncie, Indiana to pray. Richard McKinney went to that mosque to blow it up. Mr. McKinney, who goes by Mac, is a veteran. When he arrived at the mosque, its members, including co-founder Bibi Bahrami, could tell he was troubled. But instead of shunning him, they welcomed him. That reception prompted a change of heart, one that was documented in the short film Stranger at the Gate. The film was nominated for an Oscar earlier this year, and it continues to screen across America and beyond, sharing its message of compassion and care over fear and hate. Back in February, Richard Mack McKinney and Bibi Bahrami joined Nil for a feature-length interview. Here is part of their conversation. 
Bibi, let me start with you. What were your first impressions of Mac when he first appeared at the mosque? My first impression of Mac was somebody looking at a little concerned, big guy with tattoos, a little scary. Yeah. But in the meantime, I see vulnerability in him, like he may be looking for something. How did you How did you uh, spot that vulnerability? Uh, because of my uh, experience and upbringing, I uh, was blessed with a family. My father always had welcome people. Uh, there was not stranger in the house. They, we had home for homeless. And then uh, my dearest husband, who is a family physician, and I work in his office, and a lot of his patients, military guy and others, just seeing some of those people with difficulties and uh that's what I saw in him, and I just respectfully greeted him and welcomed him to the center. And Mac, you know, she and others sensed some danger there. Was that the message you wanted to send? What What were you thinking when you showed up at the mosque that day? No. You know, I was looking for, for facts. I was looking for proof that these were evil people. But I had to basically play a part. I wanted them to... To not be afraid of me, uh, I introduced myself as just somebody that wanted to learn a little bit more about Islam. You were on and, a reconnaissance uh, mission, though. Well, it, it, it kind of. I mean, not for the bomb itself, but for the fact of, you know, I was trying to get information, was it. You said in the documentary quite clearly that you wanted to do as much damage as possible and kill yes. a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Why? Um, that is the million dollar question. Why? Um, it was, a it was a hatred that had found a home inside me and basically became so powerful that I, I have often described it as being another organ in my body. I thought it was keeping me alive, to be honest. Where do you think that anger and hatred came from? How did it build up? to that point where you're walking into the mosque with that plan? It was uh, something over time. You know, of course, the wars didn't help. And that was probably maybe a foundation. Um, I don't really have a specific incident that happened that turned me. Uh, Even 9-11, yeah, it was probably part of it, but it wasn't the incident that happened that just turned me that way. And it grew. It grew when I was injured in Iraq and medically retired, um, I was very upset with the government, with the military, because they didn't need me anymore. Um, And I decided that I was going to take all that out on the Muslims. You know, Bibi, you talked about how you have this history in your family of being so welcoming and taking people in. But at the time this is happening, there is a lot of hatred against Muslims. You're feeling it and seeing it every day in your community. Mm-hmm. How did you get past that and that feeling of something's not right and there's a dangerous element here? You and your husband welcomed yeah. him. Your husband embraced him. Yeah, that's a great question, dear. Personally, I mean, all along, I had welcomed people in my house. Uh, this is very normal for me in my life. There was a, I was in a peace uh, and conflict study class, and I was uh, watching a video about Iraq and the war. 
and there was a girl said that, oh, my parents hate Muslim. And on my right, there was a boy, young people. I mean, they're more educated. They understand. Like, I don't know what to do with my parents. They hate Muslim. And, and I told both of those students, I would love to have your parents welcome to my house. And in this old age, I don't want them to live with this hate. If I can make them understand the better side of the Muslim, what they hear is from negativity, unfortunately, Islamophobia, terror, to hear those kind of statements after 9-11, it was a difficult time for all of us. But while people were telling me, you have a head cover on, it's going to be danger for you You're going to school. I had kids in school everywhere. I'd say, you know, no, this is a place we chose, but we changed it to positive, even though we were hurt many ways. Mm-hmm. In Afghanistan, my family was hurt, and I was worried for my children's future and ourselves. People were thinking that maybe Muslim may be kicked out of this country. All of that, we changed it to a positive. We got involved even more in our community. Mm-hmm. And some of the members told me they were not comfortable coming to the center because this person is keep coming. Even when he converted to Islam, there was a big concern. And I said, I'm going to invite this, these people who has a big concern and also Mac to our house for dinner. We'll sit down on the table. Mm-hmm. And this is the only way I would truly know who Mac is. Yeah. If we go back to that first day, Mac... Such a warm welcome. What are you yeah. thinking as you left? I was confused, actually. When I left, I was like, man, these people, they were like, at least, you know, to my face, I'm sure, like, you know, like BB said, there was there was some harsh feelings or some, some uh, fear. But for the most part, everybody just treated me like I was just one of them almost, really, you know, just welcome me in and... It, glad to talk to me um and i was confused because i'm like this is not what i'm used to this is not this is not islam as i know it these are not muslims as i know it and i was just confused what brought you back was it trying were you trying to solve the puzzle or see if they were for real well um i i as time went on, I, I, I enjoyed being around them. But before that, even I was, uh, that, that first day I was handed a Quran and I was, I was told by the guy who gave it to me that, uh, Jomo, he's also in the film, um, mm-hmm. uh, to come back when I got questions. And I was like, I was excited because I was like, I got the proof in my hands. And then I'm also going to get the whole thing explained to me on top of that. I was like, yes, this is going to be easier than I thought. And, uh, but as I read and as I come back with questions, I found out the opposite was true. At what point did you decide to back away from that plan to bomb the mosque? It was, it, it, it was a combination of, of knowledge, of reading the Quran and, and getting the explanations. And uh, a, a big part was the way I was treated by these people because my impression of Islam was opposite what I was reading in the Quran and what I was reading in the Quran and the way these people were treating me was what the book said. It was, it was the way the religion was supposed to be portrayed by the people who claimed that religion. And I was like, Oh wow. I think I was, I, I was wrong about everything. And so I started dismantling bomb and disposed of everything. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the way it should be. Yeah. And, uh, and BB, when did you 
find out what Mac's original intentions were? I don't, to be honest, I don't remember the exact timing. I invited him over to my house Mm -hmm. after I was hearing the concern from the community members that this is the rumor, this is what what we heard, and we're very concerned, and some of them chose not to even come to the center. And that was the time I invited him over that I wanted to sit down and ask him. I mean, I have met him before. He did look concerned, but I say in order to really know the truth, I need to invite him over. And that's after we had dinner, and I asked him that... uh, I call him Richard, sometimes Rick, and he goes by three names. He's lucky man. <laughs> and then I call him, I say, is, this is what I heard the rumors, and is this the truth, brother? And that's the time he declared the truth, and he was very sincere about it. And I could see his sincere heart and his face and the way he was trying to tell me, then telling me that meeting people like yourself, and he wished he had that. He did not do that. He did not plan for this. But that's how I think uh, the impact and of my husband, like in the center, how he sat down with him and holding him, like, are you okay? And comforting him. I think all of this had already, that he told me that this has impacted him already, you know, in the mosque. And now we welcome him to our house and how we treated him with respect and kindness had had touched his heart. That's like what he told me uh, on the dinner table. Mac, you know, forgiveness is is central to to your story uh, as a community, central to the documentary as well. Right. Have you been able to to forgive yourself? Actually, um, yes, I have. Mm-hmm. Um, it uh, it was a few months ago, or well, about a month or two ago, I guess, and. Uh, you know, I sat down and it's something I've been working on. And I thought about the fact that, you know, my big thing is owning what you do, being responsible for your actions. Um, hey, that's what I teach my clients in my job. I'm a life coach and being responsible for your actions, but learning from them. And even though the things I did, you know, there's no other way to describe them except that they were evil. This is from your time in the military. You're not yes. even, you're not just speaking about the, your original plan at the moment. No, well, that too. I mean, mm-hmm. it, all of it. But I mean, you, you know, my 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 problem. The reason I call it evil is because I enjoyed it, and um, that's actually a hard thing for me to admit because mm-hmm. that's a sickness. But I look at what I've been doing for quite a few years now and trying to do everything I can to change the narrative, to get people to see a different side of things, not just in religion, but in, in all things, you know, uh, I call it my anti-isms campaign. Mm-hmm. If it has an ISM on the end of it, it's probably a bad, it's probably something that needs to change. <laughs> so, so, um, and, and, and that's what I'm doing. And I, thought about that and thought about that and I was like you know what I'm doing a lot of good now and I, I I can say that because that's what I've been told you could have skipped that dinner you could have never gone back to the mosque never seen these people how important 
was it to you, though, to to come clean? Well, um, one thing for sure is now I'm a Muslim and uh, lying is not something we do. <laughs> That's one. Uh, two, um, I needed people to understand that change is possible. And people, because they present themselves one way, does not necessarily mean that's truly who they are. You were clearly someone searching for community. And you had lost, you know, your team from when you were in the military. uh, And we see that so often now. But we also, Bibi, have seen horrific examples of where kindness and trust did not end well. Uh, We've seen that happen in the United States. So how do you reconcile the what could have been, the what ifs. Yeah, I think the reality is very difficult as we hear it uh, actually every day, these shooting, these unfortunate incidents happens. And sometimes I wish we have no weapons in this whole country. It hurts you a lot. But uh, with this incident, uh, I look at everything again, my faith comes in, you know, I say God knows best for every situation that happens, you know, we hope and pray something good comes out of it. And this was one of those uh, situations in my life from many others that I had experienced that kindness will heal, uh, care and love and understanding and respect will bring us together in a unity and uh, I think this was one of other example of money that I have experienced mm. with this situation, the community, and then also making him involved in the part of the leadership and the community and giving him responsibility. And uh, there was a saying that uh, I have heard that long, long time ago, one of my son's first grade teacher, uh, he had it on the wall. They say, you tell me I forget. And if you teach me, I may learn. But if you involve me, I learn. And I really had a big part of that in my life throughout to involve people, to make them part of you. And he became part of us, part of the community, and everybody loved him and got comfortable with him as he was involved and giving him more responsibility at the center uh, and even standing outside to be our security guard. I think the whole thing, the healing for the community and the comfort came out of uh, the involvement. I mean, now he, Mac has told me many times that uh, how people respect him and welcome him. And he feels great about that. And uh, I think this is a huge part of his um, comfort, the way Mm -hmm. I was seeing it. And he can speak for that. But personally, that was my experience uh, of the outcome. This could have been, uh, even yesterday, I received a call from one of the members that imagine if this story, you have saved so many people's lives but by your kindness, this story could have been in a different uh, way, as we all know that. Uh, thanks to the people, if this was a somebody, a shy person, they could have just like either shy away from them if there was a person with the anger, they could have been getting mad at him. What are you doing here? They give me a specific example of money that could have happened. But instead, uh, with your brave and your kindness and your confident response, made a different impact for our community. 
Yeah, it's still resonating with people uh, as you continue to share the story and you're sharing it in, in Stranger at the Gate. Mac, as you travel across the country, what do people say to you as they're going through their own their own issues? They're they're listening to you for a reason. Well, I mean, some of the responses I've gotten is there needs to be more Max in the world. <laughs> and and I, I I laughed about that. BB was there when I when I was told that actually. And uh I said, There doesn't need to be more of me. There needs to be more BB. There needs to be more more BBs, more more Baramis, more of the people in the Muncie Islamic community. You know? And there's many, many outside that even non-Muslims that have taken this message and have run with it because of the way our country is at this point and the world, there's a lot of hatred and with love, it can be overcome. Bibi, what do you hope people take away from your story? Because there is a lot of hatred, uh, as, as Max said, as we see all the time, a lot of division. There are very different versions of America, uh, just deep, deep divisions. So what do you hope people take away from this film? Yeah, I hope and pray, I mean, there is a great uh, message in this uh, beautiful documentary, and I'm grateful for people like Josh Saftal who made the short documentary to have the courage to share it with others. And I'm very grateful for the entire humanity who are supporting this and who are voting for this, who is bringing it to this level, uh, that makes me very grateful, very, very grateful. Even though we get disappointed, we have so much hate and so much, but so many people are supporting this message that's going to help our humanity, our shared humanity. Hate is what's hurting us. And if you can just open and understand and uh, have a conversation will bring us to a different world. Hopefully we make for tomorrow for our grandchildren in the future. Respect, kindness, understanding. I do want to ask you one more question, just as we mm-hmm. look ahead to the Oscars, if that's all right. Mm-hmm. This story, your life, what you've done here could win an Oscar. Did you ever imagine that this would be part of your story in the United States? Yeah. That's a great question. When Josh contacted me, it was November of 2020, just a few weeks before God gave me a second life to live. I was under surgery. My heart stopped and in coma for like six days. And when he contacted me and then I said, he wants to do this documentary, I said, oh, my gosh, I was so touched by his uh, willingness to do this, very touched by it. I said, oh, my, this Jewish person is contacting me from New York. But anyway, then understanding, because really I don't watch movies, I don't watch news, (laughs) I had no idea what Oscar was. I had no idea exactly what he, when he sent me the first first, uh, version to look at it, I was so busy, I told my husband, I said, we have to look at it. And when I watched it, I said, oh my gosh, this is like real thing. (laughs) What did he do with it? Oh, it's real. It's real and it's very powerful. (laughs) It's so powerful when we... Heard it. I was shocked, like just listening to it and how amazing job they did. But one thing uh, I would say, I didn't know what Oscar was, but I told Josh, the director, I'd say when I originally decided that God gave me a second life to live, I'd say even if I die again, this message will live. 
Mac, what is it like for you to see this story and what you've lived through together elevated to this platform? Yeah, it's it's very surreal. I, I never thought that this much of a big deal would be made about this story. You know, Josh will tell you that when he first approached uh, BB and I both to talk about it, we were like, well, it's just another day in Muncie, you know, but I've always understood there was a powerful message. And that's what I've been doing for years uh, now, uh, since Josh first had me on a series called A Secret Life of Muslims. It was a little five and a half minute video. And ever since then, I've been talking to people. I've been meeting with people. I've been going to universities and talking about changing the narrative. That's the important part. The fact that we are nominated for an Oscar. Wow. That's just like extra stuff. BB and Mac, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this uh, good message and we'll keep you in our prayers. From February, that was Neil's conversation with Richard Mac McKinney and Bibi Bahrami. They're featured in the Oscar-nominated short documentary Stranger at the Gate, directed by Josh Seftel. For more on the film and to find out how to watch it online for free, visit our website at cbc.ca slash AIH. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app. Take care. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Ipi Chiwetelu. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.